Hello again, everybody. Uh, nice to be with you once more and welcome to the next of my episodes on the ABC of street names of Birmingham. And today we've got up to the letter P <clears throat> and P is for Pebble Mill Road, somewhere that's often known to people that have never been to Birmingham or know very little about it. It's one of those things like Edgbaston for cricket, which not everyone from around the world realises in Birmingham, or Aston as in Aston Villa. Uh, it's less the case with Pebble Mill now, but for very many years, the name used to go to a national audience because it was the home from 1970 of the BBC's radio and television broadcasting centre, which was known not as BBC Birmingham for many years, but as BBC Pebble Mill. And it spawned a number of programmes from Tele Addicts to Top Gear um, and all sorts of national as well as local input. But I wonder how many of the people that heard the name near and far ever gave much of a thought about where it comes from. Well, it's as obvious as it sounds. There was once a water mill standing nearby. It's actually at the confluence of the rivers Ray and the Bourne Brook in what's now the grounds of the Birmingham Nature Centre. Um, in 1597, we get a reference to Pebble Mill. It's recorded as belonging to a man called John King, which is spelled K-Y-N-G-E in those days when spelling wasn't as fixed as it is now. And he was recorded as a fuller. Now, I've heard it said, but I certainly can't confirm it, that this is the earliest recorded fulling mill in England. Fulling, if you don't know, was the beating and stretching of cloth mechanically done with mallets to prevent it from shrinking when it was washed. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there was very little in the way of temperature control and low temperature washing. Not all medieval cloth came fitted with laundry labels. And so you had to pre-treat it all, really, by fulling it before it was sewn up to make garments. Eventually, though, like the vast majority of other mills around the Birmingham area, Pebble Mill became a blade mill manufacturing knives, daggers and swords and was still in operation into the 1890s when it was recorded as being a flour mill being run by a man called Henry Harrison. Uh, now, very few of the mills survive now. There is a notable one. Um, on the River Cole in South Birmingham called Sarehole Mill, which is not only preserved as a branch museum uh, for the city's museum's trust, but is also much visited because it has connections with the young J.R.R. Tolkien, as we've talked about before. But Pebble Mill itself ceased to exist at the end of the 19th century. But by then, Pebble Mill Road had been created. Um, Pebble Mill Road, a little bit later, was actually the first road in Birmingham. It's not particularly long. It just links the Bristol and Pershaw roads. Um, but it was the first road in Birmingham to be given a tramway along its central reservation, which is why to this day there is a wide grass verge down the middle. This was an idea that was pioneered by Birmingham's tramways department. The idea is you'd have a reserve track tramway down the middle and then carriages for motor traffic either side. It was a very simple idea and it was very successful. Trams didn't hold up the traffic and 
the traffic didn't hold up the trams and it was it was just very very good so much so that the idea was then copied in other parts of Birmingham nearby on the Bristol Road that's long routes out to Rednall and Rubery on the Tyburn Road in northeast Birmingham the outer part of the Stratford Road and Short Heath Road in northwest Birmingham and in a few other places as well. And you can still see this 60 years after trams ceased running. These roads are still beautiful, wide, tree-lined routes. The Bristol Road bit has now in part become a cycle path, but all of this came as a result of trying it out in the middle of Pebble Mill Road. And you can still see that today. In the days when the BBC used to broadcast uh, television programmes from the reception at Pebble Mill, notably the, the lunchtime chat show Pebble Mill at One, you could see out with this tree-lined road reminding everyone what a beautiful green city Birmingham is. People laugh at me sometimes when I say that, but I just ignore them or I leave them just lying, bleeding there. But you could see out across this wide dual carriageway to the rather nice houses over on the other side. But it recalls the name of a medieval fulling water blade mill used at different times just across the road in the grounds of what's now the Birmingham Nature Centre. So P is for Pebble Mill Road. <clears throat> Q is for Queen Eleanor's Drive, and we have to go outside Birmingham itself to the Warwickshire suburb or village of Knoll, which is part of our adjoining borough of Solihull. Um, Queen Eleanor's Drive is named after Eleanor of Castile, who was the wife of King Edward I. Now, by all accounts, in this era of arranged political marriages for royals, theirs was in fact a marriage of love. Eleanor is even, in some accounts, said to have accompanied Edward on the Crusades and to have sucked poison from a wound that he sustained while fighting in the, the Levant in the Eastern Mediterranean. Edward was actually heartbroken when Eleanor died at Harby in the East Midlands, and he had her body brought back to London, to Westminster, in a solemn procession for burial in Westminster Abbey, close to the shrine of Edward the Confessor, which kings of England had long regarded as the holiest Christian site in England. Now, wherever Eleanor's cortege paused overnight, Edward later ordered to be erected memorial crosses, so-called Eleanor crosses, and three of the original 12 still survive today. One is at Hardingstone uh, on the edge of Northampton. One is at Geddington, also in Northamptonshire. And the third one is just outside today's London at Waltham Cross. Probably the best known of these was the very last one, Charing Cross. In those days, Charing was a small settlement between the separate settlements of London and Westminster, and the body rested there on its last night before it was buried in the abbey. And eventually it, the last of the 12 crosses was erected there. It no longer survives. There is a Victorian sort of copy. It's actually a bit overdone on the forecourt of Charing Cross Railway Station. Um, and a lot of people think that is the original Eleanor Cross of Charing, and it isn't. It stood a little way down the hill where Whitehall now meets Trafalgar Square. 
Um, but the Northampton, and particularly Geddington ones, are very much worth a look. The Northampton one has had some much-needed restoration work done on it in recent times, but they are very, very important in the history of England, and they are worth looking up. So what then is the connection between Queen Eleanor and Noel that she should have Queen Eleanor's drive there? Well, <clears throat> it actually belonged to her. It was a you often get this with wealthy people and royals who own all sorts of manors. Doesn't mean they were ever likely to have gone there, but it was part of their income, their sort of property portfolio, I suppose we would think of it now. But Eleanor actually didn't own it at the time of her death. It had been hers, but in fact, she gave the manor of Noel, along with a number of others, to Westminster Abbey, probably unaware that in a few short years she would be buried inside that great royal edifice. But Eleanor's ownership of the manor of Noel still commemorated today there by Queen Eleanor's Drive. Cue for Queen Eleanor's Drive. R is for Robin Hood Lane. Now, that's in the Hall Green area of Birmingham. Uh, it's actually the, the name of a pub as well, the Robin Hood. Brummies always like to navigate by pubs. You go along to the Queen's Head, you turn left, you go down to the King's Head, then it's past the New Talbot, and just beyond that, you'll find the Holly Bush, and that's where it is. That's the sort of way that Brummies always give directions. But the Robin Hood pub itself, we think, takes its name from Robin Hood Lane. And this has led to all sorts of local legends on the Birmingham Solihull border springing up about the famous outlaw of Sherwood Forest coming to the area for a spot of robbing from the rich, of which, to be honest, in the, the Hall Green, Shirley Solihull area, there are many, robbing from the rich to give to the poor, as well as legends about Maid Marian. But in fact... There is no connection with Robin Hood, be he real or imaginary at all. And the name Robin Hood in southeast Birmingham actually arose due to a spelling error. Um, in a map of 1798, the area just to the east of the Stratford Road is occupied by a stretch of woodland called Robin Wood. W-O-O-D. And this stretched all the way from the Stratford Road down to Trittiford Lane in the Yardley Wood area. And at some stage later on, someone either accidentally or on purpose seems to have changed the, the W to an H, giving us Robin Hood. But that's allowed locals to come up with all sorts of legends about it. Coincidentally, I was talking a few minutes ago about Pebble Mill Road having that wide central reservation down it. That part of the Stratford Road out by the Robin Hood to the city boundary, that is also very wide for exactly the same reason that it once had a tramway running down it. And in the roundabout at Robin Hood, an island as locals all that. Uh, the tramway went right the way through the middle of the roundabout, not respecting the normal traffic flow at all. And if you look at old photographs of the site, that's one of the sites where there was a very unusual kind of telephone kiosk called a K3. Uh, some of you that know me will know that I tend to, to have a, a sometimes worrying interest in different types of telephone kiosk. I love the fact that down the road from Birmingham, um, on the A38 is the wonderful Avoncroft Museum of Buildings, which is home of the National Telephone Kiosk Collection. The, 
The kind of telephone kiosk that most of you will associate with Britain is a K6 kiosk, num- kiosk design number six. Um, it was designed by Sir Giles Gilbert Scott when uh, in his spare time he was doing Liverpool's Anglican Cathedral. But his, his best known work, I think, is the classic red phone box. Um, it had a predecessor also designed by him called the K2, which looks superficially similar to the famous K6. But instead of having modern fenestration on its windows with small and large panes it's all very regular and has georgian fenestration instead you only get k2s um outside london to the best of my knowledge in a couple of places uh there's one outside the town hall in liverpool and there's one that i know very well on the carfax right in the middle of oxford but k2s are very commonplace still in london and although they look like the the more commonplace k6s when you get them together uh, the k2 is actually enormous if you want to see some together and you're in the london area go to the walkway through smithfield market where k2 and sixes are together so what's special about the hall green junction well that had a k3 which was actually made it looked like a k6 but it was made of preformed concrete and they were painted in a cream or ivory color and they were supposed to be used in more architecturally sensitive places so i'm not entirely sure why the roundabout at robin hood is particularly regarded as that but there was indeed one there Uh, they were actually quite fragile. They were often broken while they were being installed. And to the best of my knowledge, outside museums, only one K3 now survives in public use. It's painted red, so people don't realise what it is. And of all places, it's in the Elephant House in London Zoo, or in the pedestrian area leading to the Elephant House, where I presume it's used for trunk calls. I'm sorry, I don't know why I said that. Um, but you get the general idea. So there's one of these at Robin Hood Lane anyway. So R is for Robin Hood Lane. S is for sand pits. Now there's no road or avenue or anything like that. It's a road just called sand pits. It's part of the A457, the road from Birmingham to Smethwick, Oldbury and Dudley. Um, And sand pits is the bit that runs from the parade up to Spring Hill. Um, But the sand pits that give it its name weren't a sort of children's play amenity. They weren't the the kind that you build sandcastles in. They were, in fact, holes left by the large scale extraction of sand for use in the brass and iron industry, which used to exist nearby to quite an extent. That's why not too far away we have the Brass House on Broad Street, which is now a, a pub, bar and restaurant, what was originally a brass foundry. Now, Birmingham lies on a sandstone ridge, which roughly runs northeast to southwest across the city centre. Uh, roads like Colmore Row and the top part of the sand pits are the top of this ridge. Um, now, most of these sand pits were filled in, usually with rubbish when they were extracted fully, but one remained to be incorporated into the Warstone Lane Cemetery as something very rare in England, the set of catacombs, which are still one of the sites of the city to this day. The natural amphitheatre at the bottom of the sand pits, where it rises up on the other side as the parade, that was the scene in the 1820s and 1830s 
of huge public meetings demanding electoral reform. This was uh, a cry for representation in Parliament by big new cities. Parliament had not been reformed in centuries. So places that used to be important but were now very small uh, would send one or sometimes even two members to the House of Commons, while places that were small in the Middle Ages and had now grown into big populous towns like Birmingham and Manchester and Leeds, Sheffield, these had no separate representation. Birmingham had to rely on the Warwickshire member. And this was considered deeply unfair. And there was constant agitation, notably in Birmingham and Manchester, but a, a few other towns and cities as well, for what was called generally reform in those days. And there were a number of reform bills which were thrown out. But eventually it was reckoned that if this reform bill in 1832 were thrown out, Birmingham might descend into open rebellion. And a great crowd gathered there in this natural amphitheatre to, to await the result from London with the unelected House of Lords throw out the reform bill. And it did not happen. And revolution was was avoided. It would have been interesting, though I don't want to know really what would have happened had the country continued to be not represented in, in this way. And there was much jubilation in Birmingham, particularly at this site at the bottom of the sand pits. Um, but reform is, Birmingham was very much in the forefront of this. And yet it is its role is not as well remembered as other cities. Um, Manchester was very, very important and has a fascinating story to tell. Um, Newcastle-upon-Tyne has a vast and very beautiful monument to Earl Grey to commemorate his role in getting the Reform Act through. But in Birmingham, it's left to people like me to explain how very, very important Birmingham was in this idea of getting more representation. It was still not full democracy as we would understand. Uh, people who didn't have a certain income were not yet given the vote. People that didn't live in boroughs had even less representation but it was a huge step forward and it got rid of a lot of what were called rotten boroughs particularly famous one being old Sarum near to Salisbury which could return a member to parliament despite not actually having any permanent inhabitants whereas other places did not have any and it put right that sort of thing it's one of those little places where our city played a role in changing things that benefited all of us right the way across the united kingdom so s is for sand pits and that brings to an end today's uh episode of the a to z the second a to z of birmingham hope you've learned some new things or been reminded of others do keep the messages coming. They keep me going uh, very much at the moment when I hear that people are listening. And uh, I've had people ask whether they have to pay for Spotify to get these recordings. They do not. They're now available on a number of different podcast platforms. Just search for Ian Gell for Ian Gell's Birmingham. Uh, and of course, you can go to anchor.fm itself and find me through there. So thank you very much. Keep the feedback coming and I'll be back with another episode of these very, very soon. Bye bye.